You're listening to The Q's Podcast, episode 92. Thank you for making The Q's Podcast part of your day. We use this forum to speak with credit union industry leaders and cross-industry experts for a wide range of perspectives on trends and topics relevant to you. My name is Lisa Hograff, Senior Editor for Q's and our Credit Union Management Magazine. I'm pleased to be your host. Today, we're going to explore the SECURE Act with our guest, Sharon Severson. Sharon is a consultant for Q Solutions Platinum provider, CUNA Mutual Group. During the show, Sharon will explain a great deal about the changes to defined contribution plans and individual retirement counts put forth by the new law and how credit unions might want to think about these changes. The Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act of 2019 has already changed your credit union's retirement plans, and more changes are to come as a result of the law's passage. But it's understandable if you aren't familiar with all of these provisions yet, as the act passed rather unexpectedly late in 2019. Parts of the new law went into effect almost immediately but there's still time to catch up and make sure your plan participants understand some new options the Act gives them. Hopefully this show will help you do just that. Let's get started. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd like our listeners to get to know you a little bit. To that end, would you briefly tell us about your background and how it leads you to be talking about the new Secure Act's impact on retirement plans here on the Q's podcast? Well, I've been uh, in the retirement industry, it seems like, forever. I've worked at CUNA Mutual in customer service, product, and compliance roles for more than 25 years. And before that, I worked for an insurance agency in Madison that served as a third-party administrator for small taxable employers. I received my CPC, that's a Certified Pension Consultant designation, from the American Society of Pension Professionals and Actuaries in 1996, and I live and breathe pension plans, retirement plans. Awesome. I can identify with being in an industry forever. I've been writing about credit unions for a similar length of time. It's great, right? Something you love? Something we love, right. So let's start with some key basics. What does SECURE in SECURE Act stand for? So the SECURE Act was actually part of the Further Consolidation Appropriations Act of 2020, but it stands for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act of 2019. Lately, it seems that the laws that are passed have to have some cute acronym to go with them so we are able to remember the names that used to have really complicated acronyms like TEFRA, DEFRA, and RIA. Nobody could say them right, but secure everybody can say right. So it makes it easy for us to remember. I can sure use help with that. We have a lot of acronyms in the credit union world. So why do you think Congress (laughs) felt this new law was important? Well, the Act is actually the largest package of retirement system changes in over a decade. Since the Pension Protection Act of 2006, the industry actually has kind of been making a list of things they'd like to see change for a long time, and they finally found a place to hang them. The Act contains many provisions to encourage employers to adopt new plans or enhance their current plans, 
and to provide more saving opportunities for employees in general. That sounds awesome. I'm the child of a financial planner, and she Mm -hmm. drilled early into our heads the importance of savings, and I'm grateful for that. Yes. So when was the Act passed, and when do its provisions take effect? So the Act was signed by the President uh, on December 20th, 2019, and as I mentioned, it's part of the larger Appropriations Act. Some of the provisions were actually retroactive relating to 403B plans. Some of them were effective with the enactment on December 20th, and others were effective, uh, are effective for plan years beginning after December 31st, 2019 and beyond. Some of the changes are mandatory and some of the changes are optional at the plan sponsor level, but all the provisions operationally added to the plan will need to be included in an amendment to each plan sponsor's plan within the remedial amendment timeframe allotted by the government, which is by the end of the 2022 plan year. There are special rules for collectively bargained plans and governmental 457B plans, not the tax-exempt plans like 457Bs for credit unions, but we won't get into those other plans in this uh, discussion. All right. So is there a specific part of the new law that you're most excited about, and why are you excited about it? So I think most of the conversations that I've heard about or read about since the Act was passed have been around the changes to the IRAs that become effective for January 1, 2020. So we're already in that time frame. And then the open multiple employer plans or the open MEPs options that will become effective January 1, 2021. Two exciting things. Very good. Let's start by talking more about the changes to IRAs. That's an individual retirement account, right? Yes, that's correct. The rules governing the IRAs impact most individuals at one time or another in their working careers. Qualified plan participants may take advantage of an IRA at the time of their retirement or termination of employment to roll over their plan balance. Most of us have heard along the way about the age 70 and a half or the required minimum distributions. Now those distributions must begin at age 72 instead of age 70 and a half. If the participant or individual has not already turned 70 and a half by 1231, 2019, this doesn't change anybody's required minimum distribution timing that has already begun their distributions. It just changes those who have not turned 70 and a half by 1231, 2019. With those changes to the rules around the distributions, when distributions must begin, The fact that individuals can actually continue to contribute to their IRAs if they have includable income for as long as they want to is a big benefit to many who were, uh, who are actually working after their, after they retire from their careers. You know, many of us just can't quit. We have to keep, uh, keep in it. So before this, individuals couldn't contribute to their IRAs past age seven and a half. With the baby boomer generation living longer and working longer, this is a welcome change. It puts IRAs on par with qualified retirement plans in that there is no longer an age limit for contributions for IRAs. This may be helpful for credit unions when assisting their members with their questions about IRAs or for credit unions that offer investment services to members. That's very exciting for people who like to save. So I think I'm understanding that As long as someone is earning income that qualifies for setting aside savings in an IRA, they will be able to do so. There used to be a cap. There used to be an age at which they had to stop. Is that? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. That's very interesting. 
You also mentioned that you're excited about the new law's provisions for multiple employer plans. Would you tell us more about that? Yes. So multiple employer plans have been around for a long time, but this is kind of a new variation of it that's been talked about for quite a quite some time. The Act allows for the formation of a 401k plan that includes two or more unrelated employers, and this plan type is now being referred to as a PEP, a pooled employer plan, as opposed to a MEP, a multiple employer plan. And hopefully this will allow uh, smaller employers to obtain an economy of scale that can lower both employer and employee costs. Under the Act's provisions, the PEPs, there needs to be a pooled plan provider, a PPP, another acronym for you, that registers with the Department of Labor to be the named plan administrator, the named plan fiduciary, and the responsible party for performing all the administrative duties of the plan. Participating plan sponsors can either select investments they will offer to the participants or have the pooled plan provider select the investment offerings for them. The plan sponsor can delegate its fiduciary responsibility to the pooled plan provider, but ultimately they're still responsible for monitoring the pooled plan provider. They never are totally out of being a fiduciary as the plan sponsor. There are several requirements that need additional guidance from the IRS, the Department of Labor, but we're hopeful this guidance will be available soon so everybody can join a PEP uh, starting January 1, 2021, if that's what they want to do. The open multiple employer plan concept, which really is what a PEP plan is, has been discussed for years, but most recently became a hot topic in May of 2012 when the Department of Labor issued an advisory opinion telling us that the open MEP was not a MEP for plan uh, for the Department of Labor purposes. Now, this means that the participating employers in that open MEP needed to file their own 5500, and 5500 is that annual return filed for retirement plans with the Department of Labor. And the open MEPs could not be part of a single filing 5500 and could not be part of a single audit for the entire group of employers, as some plan providers were actually uh, suggesting at that time. The elimination of the audit was one of the most attractive features about becoming a member of a multiple employer plan, as that can save employers thousands of dollars if they are required to otherwise file an audit for their single employer plan. Sometimes those audits can cost between ten and $15,000, and on a credit union um, budget, that's a big number. Generally, plans that have 100 participants or more must file an audit with their Form 5500. So small employers, this doesn't really apply to, but, you know, the larger credit unions, they were looking at that audit as a big cost savings for their joining a MEP. Yeah, credit unions do like to work together, right? Their basic structure is a cooperative, which implies working together to me. And then they do things like form credit union service organizations where they join forces in starting essentially another company that they jointly own. So it seems like these pooled plans might have some real potential for credit unions. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Actually, there are some existing closed maps, so for credit union only kind of organizations that exist currently, and CUNY Mutual does administer a couple of those right now, and I'm sure there are others that I'm not aware of that other service providers are helping out with. But yes, you're right. Credit unions like to band together and uh, 
help each other out. So this is an ideal arrangement for credit unions, absolutely. So Sharon, I understand the new law may allow more options for retirement plan participation for long-term, part-time employees. Is that right? And if so, would you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. You know, credit unions have uh, usually have a a large number of part-time employees, and they're not the only industry that has that kind of employees. But with the new law that was passed, it provides participation in retirement in a 401k plan for long-term, part-time employees. So under the existing law, Qualified retirement plans may exclude part-time employees from participating if the employees do not complete 1,000 hours of service in a year. The SECURE Act will change those rules, and it allows 401k plans to extend participation solely for the purposes of making elective deferrals, so salary reduction kind of contributions, to the part-time employee who has worked at least 500 hours in each of the immediately preceding three consecutive 12-month periods. Now, that sounds kind of complicated, but it means those people that consistently work under a 1,000 hours, if they've been with your company three years, they would be eligible to come into the 401k plan under this new provision. So 401k plans would not require to provide matching or other employer contributions to these part-time employees, and they would not be included as part of this new law in the non-discrimination and top-heavy testing, which is a good thing because they could be a detriment to that test. So these changes are effective for plan years beginning after 12-31-2020, but the periods of service prior to January 1, 2021 are not taken into account. So the first time an employee could enter the plan under this new provision would be January 1, 2024 for a calendar year plan. So three years they have to work after the law becomes effective, so that's January 1, 2021, but they wouldn't actually come into your plan to make deferrals until January 1, 2024 for a calendar year plan. If your plan already uses elapsed time, meaning no minimum hours are required, just the passage of time, to determine eligibility, these employees are most likely already participating or already eligible to participate in that plan. This change is mandatory and must be added to plans. So this seems like another good option, another expansion of people's ability to save. And that's exciting to me, the child of a financial planner once again. (laughs) So are there any additional aspects of the new law that you think credit unions will want to know about? I think credit unions will want to know more about the changes to the safe harbor plans. Ah, Um, Some credit unions have adopted that. Tell our listeners more about these safe harbor plans. So safe harbor non-elective plans and a non-elective contribution is similar to a profit sharing or a fixed contribution. These safe harbor non-elective plans require a minimum employer contribution of usually 3% of compensation. And it's made for all eligible participants and there can be no conditions or contingencies like last day of the year employment or a thousand hours of employment during the year to earn that contribution. Since this is a required contribution for all eligible participants, the non-discrimination testing is deemed to have passed for the ADP, or average deferral percentage test. This allows the uh, higher paid individuals to contribute as much as they want to up to the IRS limit without concern of having it being uh, returned after the end of the plan year when the testing is completed. 
Now, the prior rules for the safe harbor non-elective provision were that they could be effective for the beginning of the plan year or no later than three months prior to the end of that plan year. But the new rules permit the non-elective provision to be added as late as the 30th day prior to the end of the plan year if the plan is going to provide a 3% minimum contribution. Now, this would be a good method to avoid having an ADP test failure. If you are testing or monitoring your uh, contributions for your highly paid uh, compensated uh, people during the year and find out that, ooh, the test is going to fail and we were going to give a 3% contribution anyway, this might be a solution to avoid that test failure. There's also an opportunity for the safe harbor provision to be added as late as the end of the year following the ADP test failure if the contribution minimum is 4% instead of 3%. So you have lots of flexibility to make that ADP test pass if you think it's going to fail or it has failed. So other changes to the safe harbor plans under the SECURE Act include an increased auto-enroll limit, so from 10%, which is the current cap, to a maximum of 15% of compensation after the first year of eligibility. So if you have a plan that says, okay, if we don't get enrollment paperwork from a participant, an eligible participant by a certain time frame, we're going to have them come into the plan anyway, and they would have to opt out. So that's a way of getting those folks in the plan without actually having them turn in paperwork. And it's a good thing, obviously, like we talked about. It allows for them to save for retirement, which is always a good thing. The elimination, and finally, there's a, a elimination of the annual notice to participants for the safe harbor non-elected plan. A lot of employers don't like the administrative burden of having to send a notice out to participants telling them that they're going to put in a 3% contribution for the year. So if it's a non-elective contribution, the annual notice is eliminated, but it does not eliminate the annual notice for a safe harbor match, which is another plan design using a safe harbor contribution. It's so good that you have such passion for pension plans. There are a lot of details to capture, and it's very clear that you're very studied and very on top of things. So it's interesting that my, the next question I have in mind is asking about clarity for plan participants. It sounds like the new law has a provision designed to help plan participants understand what their retirement income might look like based on their balance and their contributions to their retirement plan. Would you say a bit more about how this would work? That's correct. And this has actually been on the Department of Labor's to-do list, if you will, since the Pension Protection Act of 2006. So hopefully it gets done this time. But this provision uh, would, would provide an annual disclosure of projected income from a defined contribution plan like a 401k, and it would tell the participant how much they, of monthly income they would have based on Department of Labor assumptions when they retire. And this is a, and this is really interesting. Many participants don't know how much they'll need to save at retirement uh, unless they've been to someone like your mother, a financial planner, that might have helped them figure out how much money they need at retirement. But many, many folks don't actually do that. So they're surprised when they get to retirement that their nest egg isn't really what they needed after they stopped working. The illustration would help participants make adjustments in that savings plan with this information in hand. 
And it may be a few years before these projections are available as the Department of Labor needs to provide a model that everybody can use and then a set of uniform assumptions to be used in those projections so that if you move from one plan provider to another plan provider, that income projection is uh, relatively stable, you know, instead of letting everybody use their own assumptions that could provide drastically different kinds of projections. Now, the service providers will have a 12-month period after the Department of Labor releases its assumptions and model to get their system set up to comply. So this could be, you know, a couple years out still, but it's still on the to-do list for the Department of Labor, which is a very good thing. Yeah, good good theoretical foundation laid, right, for what will come. And it looks like there's still some work to do to get to actually having the projected income statements available. Great, though. Great. And what about retirement plan penalties? Are there any changes to those that credit unions need to know about? Well, nobody likes to pay the IRS any more money or the Department of Labor any more money than they actually have to. But the IRS has increased its penalties for late filings of retirement plan returns and related notices. This provision was added to the Act to offset the underlying costs, which is in uh, English is it means the IRS is losing revenue on this bill, so they're going to collect it another way. So the changes are effective for any plan returns, statements, or notices that are provided after December 31st, 2019. So that uh, additional penalty is already in play. Most plan sponsors and employers have outsourced the preparation of affected forms like the 5500 that I mentioned earlier, but usually are responsible for the actual filing of the form with the Department of Labor through their electronic process. The fees and penalties for not filing these forms have increased 10 times what they were previously. So you should give those forms your full attention when received from your service provider to avoid these penalties. So the new law has a lot in it, including penalties if the requirements of the new law are not fulfilled well. So it's really important that credit unions get good at this and figure out how they're going to comply. What would your recommendations be for a credit union that's looking to get ready to really follow this new set of rules from the SECURE Act? Well, as I mentioned earlier, some of these provisions are required and some of them are optional. So depending on your plan service provider and the type of plan document you're using, credit unions may be able to adopt an amendment to include the provisions they choose for their plan sooner than required. But most plans are taking advantage of the additional time provided by the Act to delay adoption of the amendments until the last day of the plan year beginning on or after January 1, 2022. Now, that sounds like a long time from now, but it goes by fast. As I mentioned, we're waiting for additional guidance from the IRS and the Department of Labor on some of these provisions. So if the plan amends too soon, they may need to do another amendment to clarify the provisions based on the guidance received. Regardless of when the amendment is adopted, the plan should be operated in compliance with the required provisions. Optional provisions should be amended or added or at the very least documented so that when the time comes to make the final amendments, they can capture them accurately. Now, I'm assuming that credit union's retirement plan partners can be helpful resources in navigating this new landscape. What questions would you say credit unions should be asking their providers about compliance with the SECURE Act? Well, generally, retirement plan partners, uh, there's record keeper service providers, provide an overview of the Act. 
and how it might impact the credit union's plan. More specifically, plan sponsors should discuss the items that they're interested in so they're aware of the involved cost to adopt some of these optional provisions, like possibly adding a safe harbor non-elective contribution to the plan to avoid the ADP test failures. Some of the provisions add additional administrative complications to the plan, like the auto-enroll provisions. Before adopting any of these optional provisions, it's always best to know what it means to your staff's responsibilities and how much of that work can be offloaded to your other business partners like payroll providers and record keepers. Great. Besides asking questions of their retirement plan providers, are there some good websites or other resources you'd recommend credit unions consult about the new SECURE Act? Well, there's probably more than they want to read, but <laughs> if you type uh, if you type Secure Act in the browser, you'll see thousands of hits. I did that the other day and I used the quote, so I'm just looking for the term Secure Act and I got I think pretty close to 800,000 hits on that topic. So depending on your depth of interest, you can choose to read any number of them. Being from a service provider with a compliance background, I tend to read articles from other plan providers industry organizations like ASPA that I mentioned, the American Society of Pension Professionals and Actuaries, or government websites like the IRS. While someone with an HR background might read articles from SHRM.org, for example. I'll let you choose your favorites. There's so many of them out there to read. It's such an amazing world that we can type a few search terms in and get 800,000 hits. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today, Sharon. I've learned a lot about the new SECURE Act and what it means for credit unions and their employees. I appreciate your being on the show. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you so much for listening. The Q's podcast continues to grow and develop because of people like you, dedicated credit union professionals who make learning and developing part of your everyday habit. In fact, we'll be celebrating the 100th episode of the Q's podcast fairly soon. That milestone episode will feature questions from listeners like you, answered by appropriate experts. To have us consider answering your question on episode 100, or if you have any general comments or questions about the show, please email us at podcast at cues, that's C-U-E-S, dot org. Many thanks to Sharon for being our guest. You can find CUNA Mutual on the web at C-U-N-A-M-U-T-U-A-L You can find Sharon's blog post about some of the key provisions of the SECURE Act at cumanagement.com slash 041520skybox. Get more credit union-specific content when you visit cumanagement.com. It's on-demand, individual, and team professional development at its finest. Once again, that's cumanagement.com. In addition, you can get updates on Q's events affected by the pandemic at cues.org slash coronavirus hyphen update. On that same page, you can link to Q's content and tools for making it through these uncertain times. If you're a Q's member, you have access to invaluable membership benefits to further enhance your development, many of which are available virtually. Visit cues.org slash membership to learn more about your benefits. And if you're not yet a member, take advantage of our 45-day free trial available through the summer. Simply visit cues.org to learn more. Thanks again for listening today. Q 
Syracuse is an international credit union association. Our mission is to educate and develop credit union CEOs, executives, directors, and future leaders. To learn how Cues can help you realize your potential, visit cues.org today.